I'm Rachel Deere, host of today's program, COVID-19, Keeping Up with a Moving Target. This is the May 8th update of DKB Med Radio's Coronavirus Educational Series. Thank you for joining us. As a reminder, we are providing twice-weekly, 15-minute webcasts and podcasts featuring the latest news, treatment updates, and clinical considerations, as well as answering your questions about COVID-19. These will be available on Wednesday evening and Friday morning. Sign up at covid19.dkbmed.com to be sure you get the latest updates. Today's program is accredited for ANCC and AMA PRA Category 1 credits. Please visit our website for complete CME CE information. To attest for CME CE credit, please visit covid19.dkbmed.com. There, you will also find all of our previous COVID-19 programs and have access to other free CME CE programs on a wide range of topics. You will also find slide decks from previous webinars as well as this week's webinar. Today's learning objectives are, describe the specific challenges faced by the homeless population during the COVID pandemic, and describe a strategy to address a challenge faced by the homeless population. Today, we welcome Karen Huster, who earned a BS in nursing from the University of Washington in 2005 and her MPH from the UW's Department of Global Health in 2013. In her most recent assignment in 2020, she worked as a field coordinator in response to the coronavirus pandemic in Hong Kong, where the team developed infection prevention control, health promotion and mental health activity packages targeting the most vulnerable populations. She now volunteers as one of the coordinators on the homeless response for COVID-19 with Seattle King County Public Health. Dr. Paul Awater, Clinical Director of the Division of Infectious Disease at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine, will be interviewing her today. Karn, Dr. Awater, we're happy to have the chance to speak with you today. Well, thank you, Rachel. And, and Karin, uh, you're speaking from the West Coast. I'm on the East Coast. But uh, I've been in Baltimore for over 30 years, and uh, we have a significant uh, issue with uh, uh, people who uh, are without homes and uh, intermittently dependent on a number of services. And I know this is probably a similar situation in Seattle. Since you were at the Vanguard in Seattle with COVID-19, uh, how, is, how has your city sort of shaped the responses for dealing with this uh, 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 population and give them the kind of access and help they need? Yeah, thank you for the question. Um, Seattle, I think, as uh, many people know, is one of the top cities in the United States with a population of about 12, 11, 12,000 uh, people living with homelessness. So it uh, became very quickly a big concern for um, everybody here, you know, from the mayor on down as to how we would uh, go about um, answering uh, the needs and the risks that a population that doesn't have a a roof over their heads uh, represent for us. So we were pretty um, aggressive in uh, putting uh, a team together to really focus on what the needs of, uh, of that population uh, would be. As you know, um, uh, people who, there are a variety of ways people living in homelessness live. Some 
have live in shelters, which are congregated settings. So a lot of people together, which is really um, conducive to a lot of spread of COVID of all kinds of diseases, actually. Um, some people live uh, in tents under, under bridges, right? So there are a whole bunch of different ways that people uh, experience living in homelessness and they all come with different risks. Um, and so that has been one of the challenges for us as to how, how is it to best respond to, to these groups of people having, having different needs. Yeah, I'm sure you've had to work with a number of different groups, um, both in government, uh, within your own institutions. Uh, a good friend of mine, his son is um, actually a chef for one of the shelters. And I've been hearing a little bit firsthand the difficulties. Uh, what, what, how have you sort of approached uh, a way to help people that are helping the homeless here in these settings to mitigate risks and then also amongst uh, people who are homeless themselves because as you've already said uh, certainly uh, transmission there can be probably more than uh, in the general population for certain diseases. Actually um, it's been uh, pretty interesting because one of the things because um, we really were concerned about that that population right uh, who's typically pretty vulnerable. Um, we've done a lot of testing in that group and we've found that actually um, the percentage of uh, people who are positive is actually below that of the general population. So not to say, you know, let's, let's see. I mean, we, we just have a better denominator than, than I think in the general population. We have about 6% uh, um, of folks right now that, that we think are are being infected versus 10 or 11 percent in the general population in Seattle. And so that's um, that's sort of uh, interesting. We do, you know, Seattle has about 250 shelters or so, some bigger than others. We've seen outbreaks in 45 of them um, for a total of 220 cases. And out of those, we've had about, you know, 33 hospitalizations uh, and eight deaths in total. So these are sort of the numbers to, to sort of, you know, give you an idea of, of how, how that population has been hit. So um, for us, the challenge has been really, or the goal has been really to, to mitigate the risk of spread, but also to try to be proactive to prevent spread in these populations. So a few things we've done. Uh, on the prevention side of things, uh, that's been a big effort. We have uh, what is called uh, fast teams. And there are teams that really focus on going from shelter to shelter and providing infection prevention control uh, training, um, such as you know, how do you distance mats, uh, sleeping mats in uh, uh, you know, six feet apart, recommend that people sleep head to toe, uh, making sure that there are enough hand washing stations, uh, for example, training them on uh, doing symptom screening and temperature checks, although we're noticing a lot of people are asymptomatic. Um, and then as well, recommending uh, for folks to wear masks and for the staff and for the residents in those places. Um, so that's a lot of, you know, these are some of the main preventions efforts we do. Something else we've done is we've de-intensified shelters. So there were shelters where there were, you know, maybe 200 people that would sleep in one night. 
uh, at these places. And so proactively, we've, we've de-intensified them, so moved half of those folks to other shelters. Um, the difficulty being there, then you're spreading people apart and you're putting them in places that might not have been designed to uh, be shelters in the first place and might you know, miss uh, or might lack some of the basic uh, components um, of shelters like showers, for example. So it's, it's, a, it's, it's a double-edged sword. You, know, you want to make sure that you move people and you, you spread them a little bit more, but, but you want to do this in a, in a safe way. From a, a response uh, side of things, we have what is called strike teams. And these strike teams are composed of uh, nurses, uh, sometimes doctors. If not a doctor, we have uh, definitely a doctor that's on call. Um, and then as well with an environmental health specialist. And they go to these facilities that have reported at least a case of you know, COVID-19 in their population. And so we do a, a thorough site assessment. We uh, also do a thorough symptom screening of uh, all the residents and then uh, testing as well. And we test everyone, not people who are symptomatic, so not only, but just all the residents and all the staff. And, uh, and with that, we, uh, everybody that's positive, we move them to isolation and quarantine facilities. At the same time, we make sure that all the prevention strategies that we talked about, we make sure that those are implemented. And if the facilities are not capable of implementing them, we try to support them um, so that they can you know, put in practice this implementation. So that's pretty much what we do. <laughs> yeah, it sounds uh, tremendous. There's obviously uh, a lot of messaging there as well as uh, activities. You know, some people who may be listening have taken care of people who are now in hospital with COVID-19 and they're homeless and they're going to be discharged. And I, and I think sometimes you have to keep messages as simple as possible, but someone that's had COVID and hospitalized could be a champion if, you know, they go back to a shelter and talk to others about what's most important. Sometimes they might be a better advocate because, you know, they're not be you know, it's not telling someone what to do, they're telling them their story. What are one or two things that you think have the greatest impact if you had a, uh, someone that was, you know, in a particular shelter and was a champion for trying to help prevent COVID-19? You know, it's a really good point to bring and I think that's something we're not doing enough of. And so we're coming in and we're putting in place a bunch of, you know, interventions like testing, like, uh, uh, controlling, you know, your population, but we're not, I think, doing enough of using the survivors, quote unquote, you know, uh, and, and making them champions so as to encourage the populations to, for example, shelter in place um, if uh, that's something that you, you know, want to happen if, if there is an outbreak uh, somewhere. And, and we should do this. And when I was working on Ebola, we had exactly the same issue. And it took us uh, a few years, you know, the, the, the second outbreak in DRC to, to realize that we should be using those survivors to become our champions of, of uh, you know, not, not good behavior, but stewardship of what it is that you should do. That being said, I think it's the, the population in, in uh, you know, experiencing homelessness has a lot of challenges. Um, that make it difficult for them to, to do some of the things that public health recommends, right? 
it's easy for us to do sheltering in place. Um, um, but it might be, I think it is much harder for uh, the homeless population to do so. Um, they have a few things, you know, uh, many have uh, mental health issues uh, that make it more difficult for them to, uh, to follow, you know, or to easily follow uh, recommendations from public health. A lot, of, a lot of them have mistrust or distrust with government or with, you know, public health systems in general. Some have uh, uh, drug or substance use issues um, that make it difficult for them to obey, you know, uh, shelter in place orders or isolation orders if they are uh, positive. Um, and all these things need to take into need to be taken into consideration when we approach that population because they come with they are much more complex than uh, you and I are. And I think you're totally right that. We should really make an effort to use the, those survivors, quote unquote, to uh, to help us uh, be uh, um, stewards, you know, of of what it is that they can do, so that the shelters can be good places for for people to to behave in a way that reduces a spread uh, or continued spread of COVID nineteen and other diseases, by the way. Yeah, of course, of course. So, Karin, is specifically people that uh, uh, do use um, uh, substances as well as mental health problems are particular challenges. Now, uh, how how do how does the city and your group dealt with people that really um, are refusing to be quarantined or isolated or 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 uh, doing their part for social distancing? Are there certain techniques that you feel have been effective? Yeah. So that's that's a. Uh, probably one of the biggest challenges that we're faced with. What, what do you do with somebody who you know is positive um, and does not want to go to an isolation and quarantine facility? So this is where um, uh, a lot of uh, good negotiation skills uh, uh, matters because we do have actually isolation and quarantine uh, areas that take into account the needs of uh, these populations. We we set them up, recognizing that um, that uh, you know sometimes somebody this is not the time for them to stop their drinking habits or or you know their drug use habit. And so we do have these systems in place for them to uh, to carry them through the isolation time. Uh, and then uh, maybe at the end, hopefully set them up with, uh, with a structure so that they can work if they're interested in, in you know, in, in uh, modifying or kicking off that, uh, that dependency. But that's not the focus of the isolation time. So we try to explain that to them, but still there are people who will not want to go. Yes, there are things like uh, orders from a health officer, but these are never coercive measures. It's probably the very, very last thing that you want to do. Uh, jail is probably a very bad idea, as we all have yes, seen. Right. Uh, uh, and so that's definitely not the route we, we prefer to go. Uh, in congregate settings, one of the things we uh, try to, um, to find with the staff that work there is how can you set up an area of your congregate setting that can be used for isolation should you have uh, a client that refuses to go um, 
And so that's something we were able to set up with folks. It doesn't need to be very complicated. You know, it can be just removing uh, a few mats and, and putting some screens and having that person stay. But, but, but then there the issue is the staff is not comfortable with having somebody who's positive in, in a congregate uh, a shelter. Um, so it's, it's always, um, you go on a case by case basis, there is no rule uh, but definitely the one major rule is how can we work with the, with the resident, with the client to make sure that we can accommodate them uh, so that they are not a risk for their community and as well that they can be taken care of should they become sick, right, in a place where there is some medical oversight. Yeah, so it sounds like a lot of these techniques, I wonder... Uh, there have been a number of cities uh, where uh, people uh, don't want to go to, to shelters and so on, in fact, because of the fear of contagion. It's not just paranoia. I think it's a real fear. And there's been examples such as uh, uh, people living in the subway stations in New York or other areas of uh, mass transit. And of course, that's also probably a, a not sound idea. So, so how, do you, uh, how do you address people that have that fear in this stage? Is there something you can offer in terms of reassuring or, or other maneuvers? Yeah, I think um, one... One of the things we try to do with the staff is we try to give them good training so that when they do encounter those uh, uh, types of uh, residents who don't want to come in or who are asking, you know, what is it that you're going to do for me, that they can provide, you know, okay, here, we've done testing of, the, of all the residents in this facility and uh, this is, you know, what we found so far. We have these measures in place so you can, you can rest assured that, uh, um, your risk of getting COVID will be reduced. The mats are six feet apart. Uh, uh, there are hand washing stations. Everybody's wearing a mask. Um, the food is also served uh, either by a staff and not self-serve or they're being uh, put together in containers so that there is no, no touching of everybody uh, on, on spoons, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, these are some of the measures that, you know, or some of the things you can uh, inform uh, somebody who might want to come in the shelter but is scared of going. That being said, you know, it's, it's going to be summer, it's going to be warmer, and uh, people will probably prefer to be outside um, than to be inside. There is something to be said about um, homelessness, you know, there, there might be uh, the, the fact that they live so much in isolation in a way might be in, in this case a bit of a protective factor, right? Somebody who's sleeping in a tent uh, under, the, under a bridge um, might be a bit more protected than somebody who's sleeping with 150 other folks uh, in a shelter. And so it's hard to convince them in any case that this is not the case, right? That they should be in this congregated setting. Some hospitals to sort of address concerns amongst patients and healthcare workers have pivoted to universal screening. And I wonder, has that been any discussion, especially in homeless shelters where perhaps once weekly swabs or something along that nature would 
lend significant reassurance. Obviously, there's costs and other things, but rather than just syndromic assessments, looking for people who are ill and 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 then helping them with care, is that something that's been discussed at all in King County? So our strategy in the homeless shelters has been blanket testing. So we don't do syndromic. We've been testing everywhere we go. We've tested everyone, every resident and every staff. Um, and so that's something that we've um, put in place since the beginning. And, and, and how frequently are you doing that? So that has been, you know, the learning curve. We don't, especially in settings that have outbreaks. So it's the strategy we have right now is if you have um, somebody who's, um, if, if, if you test, do blanket testing in a, in a facility and you have no cases, then it's easy, you stop and you might go back to it in, you know, three weeks or so, you know, doesn't, you know, nothing specific. If you do have a setting where you do have an outbreak and we define for now an outbreak as being two or more cases within two weeks, um, then what we've been doing is retesting at one week, again, blanket testing of everybody. And then so long as there are cases that come out, continue. But it's a bit of an unsustainable sort of strategy. And we are right now in, in the brainstorming uh, phase of, you know, what, what does this look like in the long term? And um, especially as we're moving more and more, you know, uh, we've been pushing shelters to uh, use motels and hotels which have been leased uh, by the county but also by the agencies that you know have shelters um, to push these congregate uh, shelters into individual rooms in motels and hotels so um, we'll have more opportunities to do testing and and uh, i think the urgency hopefully will be a little bit less because these congregated settings will uh, not be so so common anymore uh, so, Karin, the pandemic is clearly a once-in-a-lifetime, we hope, or once-in-a-century circumstance, but you have worked in a lot of challenging situations overseas and with uh, populations that have their own special challenges. When you come in and parachute into these kind of situations, um, there's a lot of uncertainty, a lot that's not known, a lot of learning on the fly. Um, what kind of things from your background would help us here in the United States where we really love to have a very ordered approach, we think we can control everything, and uh, this is clearly showing us that we cannot? Well, I think definitely um, one thing that, that I've learned is that uh, good, good coordination for a response is essential, right? So, um, and that's one thing that... Uh, that you really need to have in place if you if you want to have an efficient uh, response. Um, the other thing I think as well is um, we we need to make sure that uh, as always uh, vulnerable populations are going to be the most vulnerable in any kind of situation. You know, it doesn't matter that it's Ebola, that it's measles, that it's uh, COVID nineteen. Um, it's affecting all of us, but it's affecting vulnerable populations even more. Um, and so we need to make sure that uh, whatever response we have takes into account uh, uh, their needs and really uh, make sure that we focus, um, we focus there because otherwise the price will be paid the dearest in, in those populations. Another important thing that um, 
we have learned, and at least that I have learned, uh, working on, on outbreaks, and that comes time and time again, is that we tend to be hyper-focused on whatever emergency it is that we're dealing with. So for now, for example, COVID-19 is about the only thing that people talk about and think about. And, um, and that comes at the expense of, um, of all the other diseases um, we forget uh, about. So, you know, if you, if you talk about resource-constrained countries, there are thousands and thousands of people dying of malaria, of childbirth, all these other uh, chronic diseases in the United States we're forgetting. People with strokes are uh, scared of coming into the hospital. Um, and, and we need to make sure that this is not happening. You know, we don't want to have more collateral disease uh, death than, uh, than we need. It's, uh, we have enough already with COVID-19, but, but I think that's really important for all healthcare providers and for the public uh, at large as well. It's to remember that COVID-19 is not the only thing that we are, that we need to think of. We must not forget um, all the other illnesses that people have, and we need to make sure that uh, there is, a, you know, people feel safe to come to the hospital to be treated. Um, and so that's that's one of the big messages I think um, that would be important for people to remember. Thank you again, Karin and Dr. Atwater, for joining us today. As a reminder, to claim CME or CE credit, please complete the evaluation at covid19.dkbmed.com and select today's activity. You'll receive your certificate immediately after. Any questions or issues, feel free to email us at the address listed. Don't forget to access our resource center on covid19.dkbmed.com. You'll find a range of information, including the latest COVID-19 data and statistics, medical society guidelines, and resources in Spanish. Any questions for our faculty can be submitted by sending them to qa at dkbmed.com. Again, thanks for joining us, and thank you for your dedication to your patients with COVID-19. Thank you again, Karin and Dr. Alwater, for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Uh, Karin, thank you so much in these uh, incredibly stressful times. Uh, your insights are really helpful to try to help with this uh, most challenging situation and, and people that I think need uh, a lot of access and help. So uh, thanks so much. I, I learned a lot.